Welcome back to Careers Explained. This week, we're talking with Katie Kaur about her career path and her current role as the president and CEO of Nashville Public Education Foundation. Welcome, Katie, and thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Before we get into your career, can you give us some background on yourself and your education? Sure. I am from Nashville, Tennessee, and I went to college at Northwestern in Chicago, outside of Chicago, and then moved to D.C. after I graduated from college, went back to school, didn't really know what I wanted to do out of college, like many people, and um, always had a passion for public education, and so went back to school when I was in D.C. at Georgetown and got my master's in public policy with a concentration in education, and so that set me off on a path of, you know, I didn't know if I'd be a good teacher. I actually kind of had a hint that I wouldn't be a good teacher, but I really wanted to do something to um, ensure that every child had a great public education experience, and so I went into the policy side of things, and I had a variety of different types of jobs um, that ultimately led me to where I today. Awesome. And going back to undergrad at Northwestern, mm-hmm. you said you weren't really sure what you wanted to do when you graduate graduated. So what was your process of when senior year rolled around, mm-hmm. figuring out what your next step was? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, it, I'm 50 years old, but I remember it vividly. So um, I actually changed my major six times when I was at Northwestern. So I was very, uh, I'm one of those people that's really interested in a lot of different things, but was never quite sure on where I should land, uh, what my actual passion um, and skill set kind of aligned, where those aligned. So I started off as an education major. I dabbled in pre-med for a little bit. I went into um, an anthropology stage of my life. And then I ultimately ended up majoring in religion, which I was always interested in, and history, neither of which help you do a lot if you don't want to teach, if you don't don't want to be a professor. Um, And so I started thinking, what else am I kind of focused on? I had been volunteering at a public school in um, Chicago. And I was just really interested in how I could kind of give back and help the help the world. And so I had a couple of um, inner conversations with people who were involved in politics, which I also was interested in, which is what led me to move to D.C. And so I got some kind of informational interviews, as many as I possibly could. I literally called every single person and just said, I know you don't have a job, but please help me and let me think if I can, you know, give me some ideas of where I could possibly um, research a position. And then finally landed in a political campaign uh, for a um, senator from Tennessee who was running for re-election. He, he ended up losing, but it was an incredible experience. I got paid hardly nothing, but um, but really great um, policy experience and really great political experience. And then and then that kind of just led me to, okay, now I need to like double down and, and go back to school and actually get some credentials for something I, I can use for my career. So from the job as an intern in that political campaign, you went back to school for education. So what was the gap between working in politics and then going into education? Mm-hmm. Um, I had a brief stint in uh, at working at the museum, which was a news, it's like the news museum in DC. And that was fascinating to me from an education perspective perspective because it was just like museums are just an incredible wealth of you know how to educate the public in a really interesting way and um and I always had this kind of 
desire to do something in public education. I was working, I was volunteering in a charter school in DC at the time. I'd had this political experience, which I, was interesting to me, but it was more of like a passion project than it was a career choice. And so um, I started looking around and I actually did apply to some graduate schools for uh, teaching licensure in addition to policy, because I was kind of trying to debate, do I want to be in the classroom or do I want to do the policy angle of things? And I had done some um, some volunteering classroom experiences that were interesting to me. And I certainly uh, think that working in a classroom is the most important job there is, but I was clearly not that cut out for that work. Um, I think you have to be really an amazing human being to be a teacher. And I think I, the teachers in our classrooms are so incredible and I have so much deep respect for them and it's not a job for everyone. And it just wasn't the right fit for my skill set. But given that I wanted to do something in education, I thought policy would be a good um, platform. And Georgetown's policy program was really strong uh, and one of the first in the nation to have a policy institute. And so I um, I decided to go to school there. Awesome. And so far to me, you seem like a pretty great person. So can you explain the gaps of why you didn't think that teaching was a good fit? What in your skill set was better suited for policy as opposed to teaching? Um, well, I think one of the most important things that a teacher needs to have is patience. And patience is not one of my top skills. I think my team would tell you they love we we have a sense of urgency here at the foundation, and we uh, we move at a very fast pace. And I'm working on my patience skills, but definitely not my top skill. So you have to have a lot of patience, um, and you have to also be um, really good at, uh, the day in and day out that is really challenging for a teacher, which is, it's just, it's one of the hardest jobs on the planet. And I think my skill set, I'm, I'm a problem solver and I'm a communicator. And I think my skill set was just better suited towards, um, how can we create great enlightened public policy that supports our students and doesn't get in the way of their learning and then leave the expert, um, teaching to the ones who can really do it the best they possibly can, which which is exactly, I mean, we have incredible teachers in our district, so. It worked out well for everyone. You could yeah. focus more on the bigger picture, problem solving and planning and leave the day-to-day -to, -day to those with the patience to appreciate that. Setting. That's exactly right. And that's, and I think nothing makes me more upset than when I hear, you know, the saying that, if you can't do, then teach, you know, that kind of idea that like, if you can't do anything else, you then go ahead and go teach. That is the farthest from the truth. I, I cannot, I think it's one of the hardest jobs on the planet. And I think it's the least rewarded. Um, it's very rewarding to individual teachers, but we as a society do not value our teachers in the way that we should. So. And so to someone who might say that, what's your response? Why does education matter to you? And in general, why do you think it's so important? Well, there's incredible research that uh, a great education sets you on a trajectory in your life that it, that is you know, may, makes you able to fulfill your own potential, obviously increases your wages and your lifetime earnings, um, creates a, a more uh, fulfilling life in many, many ways. Um, but beyond that, I think public education is really um, how we as a community kind of get through our differences. And I think a great public system, a public education system allows all different types of voices and opinions and ideas to surface. I mean, it's like, 
you know, we talk about higher ed as being this beacon of um, intellectual inquiry and thought, and it certainly is. And we've gotten a little bit away from that in the K-12 space because we've tried to tighten so much what can be taught. And we have legislators, you know, arguing that we shouldn't be teaching about racism or, um, or other incredibly important parts of our culture and society. Um, and so I think a great public education system allows us all to, to work out those differences in a civil and appropriate way um, so that we don't end up where we are today in this kind of completely bifurcated and divisive and politically um, antagonistic world. So I see a society as uh, as really it's rooted in a great society is rooted in a great public education system. And the lack of a quality education system leads us down a path of, of some of the chaos that we've been seeing the last couple of years in, in the United States. I completely agree. And so <laughs> what out of grad school? Um, so I was working in DC during my um, graduate school years. And so I happened to be sitting next to a woman named Jennifer Vranick in one of my grad classes, in one of my grad school classes. And she had just gotten a job as an intern at an organization, a, an up and coming nonprofit called Achieve, which was a, a standards-based new organization in the mid 1990s, late 1990s. And so she just said to me one day, you know, hey, we're looking for 20 hours a week. Can you come work for us? And I was like, absolutely. And that relationship, she ended up becoming and still is my mentor in life. Um, that relationship, which started in 1997, led me down a long career path, um, lots of different turns, but all that can be rooted back to my uh, my mentor, Jen Vranick. And so worked with her for a while um, under in that role and then worked for a couple of other nonprofits, um, the Reading is Fundamental, the YMCA. And then she started a consulting organization called Education First. And I went to work with for her very early on. There were only a couple of us on staff and we were hired. Um, it was a virtual organization. We were hired. We were worked with different organizations all over the country, different uh, departments of education, states, cities, districts, et cetera. And we were hired by, you know, like maybe um, a foundation, like the Gates Foundation is interested in looking into what it should be doing for its education investments. And so we would be hired by them to help think through that strategy, or we might be hired by the Department of Education in New York City, and they were helping to roll out a new initiative for their teachers and they needed to be, you know, they needed to have some thinkers about how to do that in the most effective way. So. I learned how to work through that job and I and I started when there were just a handful of us and now it's a company of you know 80 or something people through that job I learned not only incredible education policy experience but also um, some of the softer things that you need to be successful in uh, your career which is like how to communicate effectively with all different types of people how to present information in a way that's accessible to people, how to facilitate a great meeting, um, how to set a strategy and set a vision and then drive towards that vision. And so everything that I think about that is the core of my job today as a CEO, I really learned in those years under my uh, mentorship, uh, under uh, um, Jen's leadership, how to do so many of those skills um, at the time. So I loved that job. I worked there for many years, um, but I also realized that I was feeling a little disconnected from the on the ground experience, having never been a classroom teacher myself. I certainly knew a lot of classroom teachers. I had worked a, with a lot of policymakers at that time, but I wanted some more on the ground experience. And so I ended up leaving Ed First 
um, not, not for, I mean, I love that job so much, but I left it because I needed to kind of backfill my experience with some district work. And so I came to work for my local district, Nashville's public school system and worked there for, for many years in, as their um, chief of talent. So it led all of the teacher recruitment and teacher development work for the district. So, and then that led me to uh, my current position. So awesome. And going back to the first consulting role at education first, you learned so many skills that you described that help you in your job as a CEO now, but how were you prepared for that role originally before you had the training day-to-day in that role? What was sort of the training and onboarding process like for that? Yeah, that's such a good question. I, I mean, I think the the one skill that was innate in me that I that I that I didn't have to learn as much, it was the kind of insatiable desire to learn. And so um, that's what I look for when I'm hiring people. Is like, are you eager to learn? Because if you're eager to learn, I, I we can teach you anything. You know, it's it, as long as you bring that desire to the table. Um, the skill set is not as in you know the kind of the experience and the you know does your CV, does your resume have all these different things checked off? That's that's not nearly as important to me as, as the, the competencies you're bringing to the conversation, uh, to the interview and what you um, and what you want to learn and get out of the role. And so I think Jen, my mentor, saw that in me and um, knew that I was eager to learn and knew that I wanted to learn and be better at, at every day. And so um, she, you know, I kind of came in in a kind of a small, young, you know, intern type position and just kind of grew up the ranks at that organization um, as I learned and grew under her and under many other people who I, who I learned from along the way. So um, just that eagerness, just being really eager of coming in to any organization, constantly asking, um, you know, how you can, what you can do different, how can you meet expectations, what you need to do to go from good to great. I, I'm a constant believer of good to great. Like most people come in good, let's get you to great. And what do I need to do to get there? Um, ask starting with that question is, is really important when you're, when you're just starting out uh, in the workforce. And for someone who maybe doesn't have an education background, was, let's say, a history or religion major and is now interested in the field, would you have advice for someone coming from a different background of how to prepare for a role in education, whether that be policy or more of the boots on the ground roles you described? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... I don't have a ton of regrets in my career. I've been very fortunate in all my different jobs that I've had, but I do regret not being a classroom teacher in a public school setting. And so I would advise if you're, no matter where, even even though I knew I wouldn't be that great at that job, I think I would have a different insight if I had been in that role. Um, and so I rely very heavily on my colleagues who are teachers to provide that point of view for me. But I would advise anyone, if you're interested in public education, to just do it for a little bit, even for a year. Um, but there's programs like Teacher America where you can teach for two years and then go on and do other things. Um, and you can also just you know, get, get your own certification through a regular traditional pipeline and teach for a year or two. And maybe longer, you might find that you love it. So, I, so I certainly, if you're interested in in, in public education, I, I do advise teaching um, at least a little bit. If not teaching, then in really deep work in a public school from a volunteer perspective, um, or you know, or from a part-time role that you could play uh, in coordination with maybe your higher education institution or something like that. 
Then if you want to get into the policy side of things, I think the most important thing is to understand what public policy is. And I started my graduate degree having no idea. I will be completely honest. I was like, it sounds kind of interesting. It's a little bit of politics. It's a little bit of, you know, you can talk, focus on an area of concentration that's interesting to you, but I really didn't know what it meant. And um, I, I think a traditional public policy program like the one that I did at Georgetown is actually very heavy in statistics and, and economics. And so that is not an area that I'm particularly interested in, although my education in those areas has helped me for sure. But I think I was just more interested in like learning how public policy is made in the education space and what I could do to influence uh, the creation of better public policy. And that's much less of a policy degree than I was than I realized when I went through the program. Now, the program helped me meet meet Jen Vranick and helped me get, get along. I mean, so it did so many other things for me. But um, I think there's a lot of great ways to get policy experience without going to a graduate program. And that is possible through just like work going and finding a job at your Department of Education in your state or finding a job in a local school district uh, in your central office or working higher education institutions or fantastic policy think tanks when it comes to um, education. And we have an incredible one at Vanderbilt University at Peabody on Vanderbilt's campus is an incredible institution that has great policy um, programs that you don't need to go to the degree, but you can work at the institution and do policy at the same time. So there's lots of different pathways into this field. And for someone who doesn't know what public policy is, how would you describe it? Yeah. Um, so in general, public policy is a, um, a an elected decision. So a decision that is that is based on elected officials making a call about something related to a specific policy arena. And so in my case, it'd be education. So we have education policy is mainly created um, at three different levels, although there's a fourth too. One is your local school board who creates the policy that is driving your local school board, your local school district decisions. The second is um, your state department of education and your governor's platform and whatever their that platform is and the, the departments um, that they usually run that through their general assembly or their legislature. And so that's how your policy making is created. And then the third, of course, is the, the federal level where we have um, not a ton of federal education policies, but some of the most important, like um, the protection of children with special education needs, the law that pr provide that ensures that all children with special education needs um, receive a high quality education. That's a federal law, federal policy. So you have policy making at ver very different levels, and the way you can influence policy making at each of those levels differs greatly. So I know our local school board members um, by name, and we and I'm around them quite a bit. I know some of our state legislators, but not a, not a lot. Um, and I know none of our U.S. Uh, Congress or Senate you know, leaders. And so your influence and your ability to kind of reach and, uh, and in, impact a policymaking body depends on where you sit in the ecosystem. And, and of course, mine is local. So. And so now in your current role, can you give, we have your title, but can you give a description of your role and what you do specifically? Sure. Um, so I work for the Nashville Public Education Foundation, and a lot of urban districts have something like a public education foundation. Um, so there's, you know, probably at least uh, 30 or 40 of us across the country in different urban, urban districts. 
they operate differently. Ours does two primary things. One is we serve as kind of a consultant to the district. So when the district doesn't have the capacity to manage a program or to think differently about a problem um, that they're struggling with, they'll bring us in and ask us to help build their capacity in those areas. And so we, we've kind of served literally as a consultant. Um, some examples of that are, you know, during COVID, they called on us, the district leadership called on us just to kind of say, hey, how should we be approaching opening schools? Should we keep our schools closed? What do you think about a virtual curriculum? How should we make sure that our kids have access to a laptop and Wi-Fi if we're doing remote learning? All of those types of decisions, we kind of can help the district think through as a third party, because we're not kind of sitting in the middle of it, but we obviously care deeply and we want to be supportive and helpful. We also provide a lot of professional learning for teachers. We help coordinate initiatives between the district and third party partners. Um, so we're working on an initiative with our local community college, for instance, in the district. And so just we call that space kind of district capacity building. What can we do to make sure that the district has what it needs to meet the needs of the students in the in the district. The other side of our work is, is all through advocacy and policy. And so what we do there is we have a policy agenda where we identify the things at each of the different levels that I was just talking about, the, the school board level, the um, the city council level. I didn't mention the city council, which also plays a role in, in policymaking, not a huge one, but it does. For the local level, yeah. And then the state legislature. And we have a policy agenda that hits on each different um, entity and what we think they should be focused on and need. So for example, uh, our state legislature creates the way we fund our public schools in the state of Tennessee and in all states, that's usually how it operates. And so we had a policy play where we tried to raise awareness about a better way to fund public schools and how to increase funding for public schools. And we, we got Nashvilleians um, to become advocates for a different alternative approach to funding. And all of those efforts were aimed at the state legislature. And then we have other local efforts that are aimed at, you know, ways to get our um, mayor's office to think differently about its support for our children and youth and how we can better align policies in the city's offices um, to those in the districts. And so we, we just kind of have an entire ad advocacy agenda that really um, hits on a lot of different levels and a lot of different levers. So, so unpacking that because you clearly do so much with that organization, starting with consulting, when you get a question such as how should we approach students coming back into person? What are the steps that you go through to provide answers and support? Mm -hmm. Um, so the first thing we do is our work is very much grounded in data and best practice and research. And so we, there's only six of us on our team here, but we have, um, three of us who are very focused on kind of the research side of things. And so we would go about looking at what other districts are doing. Where have we seen bright spots across the country? In the COVID example, we did a lot of work of just like with our peer sister cities, you know, hey, how are y'all thinking? What are you learning? What are you hearing from the CDC? What, what advice are you getting from your local experts, et cetera? We also partnered um, quite a bit with our local institutions like Vanderbilt um, Medical Hospital and, um, and just to get advice and make sure we were all on the same page around what's best for kids. Um, so we start on a basis of just research and data. And, and then we go from there to how we know uh, systems change happens, which is not very easy. And you have to win the hearts and minds of people to make systems change work. And so 
Um, there is a fantastic book that has changed my life called Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard. And it is all about what needs to happen to convince people uh, to change their minds and go in a different direction. And in our case, of course, that's usually, you know, things about what's in the best interest of kids and how can we all get there together. And so we use a lot of the principles of switch on a daily basis, which is really about how do you appeal to the emotional side of people and get them kind of like, oh my gosh, inspired. When you see those commercials that make you cry at, at the, you know, at the Super Bowl, it's that kind of, you know, you want to get that, gin that up in people at the same time that you want to reach their rational side, which is like, what do we need to do to be a better society? What do we need to do to make sure that, you know, we know it's, we know it's, it's in the right interest to help our kids learn to read. So how do we do that? That's like the rational side. Side of you that needs to to know the answer. So we we use a lot of strategies on both sides, appealing to the emotional part of people and appealing to the rational part of people to get them on board and move them in the right direction towards systems change. Systems change is the hardest work there is. So um, it's so slow. It, you want to just absolutely stab yourself in the eyes how slow it takes to to move um, bureaucracies and uh, status quo work. But um, but it's the most meaningful and longest lasting work you can do. So. So you start by connecting emotionally, understanding what is important to people and then how to persuade from that standpoint of their values, mm -hmm. then to the logical side of actionable steps to take. But what does that look like? Are you calling people? Are you going door to door? Are these campaigns over media? Yeah. Um, so it depends on the initiative. So for instance, um, we're working with a set of teachers right now to help solve some inequities that we see in our classrooms. And those are things like um, black students are suspended at higher, much higher rates than white students or special education students don't have access to early post-secondary uh, coursework in the same ways that non-special education students do or um, English, language family, English language learner families are not able to participate in um, parent engagement activities because they're not uh, in translated services. And so there's all sorts of different inequities that, that are built into a school system. So we're working with a set of teachers to identify teacher developed solutions to different problems. So one teacher identified the inequity. She had a, a bunch of her students um, who are first generation students in Nashville and they were having to work full time because they were the main breadwinner for their families. And they were kept having to skip classes or miss class or miss school or drop out of school altogether. And so she created a, um, a Saturday school that allows students to get credits towards their high school degree while also being able to work full time, you know, in a job during the week. And so the way that we helped her kind of appeal to the district to allow that to happen was to first share the emotional side of stories from individual students who were unable to complete their degrees uh, because they had to work for their families and really highlight who those people are so that the district leadership could get these people's faces in their brains and they could say, oh my gosh, that's, that's um, you know, Susan and she's unable to complete her degree uh, because we don't have a flexible enough situation. So that was like kind of the emotional side of things. And then on the, um, 
on the rational side of things, we helped this person, this teacher really just kind of walk through exactly what we call critical moves, the very specific steps that need to happen to make sure that there it's credit bearing coursework, that a teacher can be hired to do it, that you're not breaking any sort of union contract negotiations by hiring a teacher. So we just kind of laid out a template for her to walk through the rational side of things to make sure that district leadership could come on board. And once you had both of those, the emotional plea and the rational, we've answered all these questions, we know we're not doing anything wrong, then, th then you really are giving the district no other option but to say, yes, which is of course what they ended up doing. And so now we have the Saturday program for kids, which is great. So that's an example, but we also work through um, media. Like you said, um, we, we certainly try to sell our initiatives and work with media uh, to get kind of to appeal to that emotional side of people sharing the bright spots in our district, all the stories that people are not hearing about um, that take place in our district every day. And, um, and we do a lot of things like, you know, write op-eds and uh, do a lot of infographics and how, how the world works in, in public education to appeal again to that rational side of, of things at the same time that we are sharing inspirational videos about um, teachers that are making a difference in kids' lives. So we do both on a daily basis. That is very powerful work. Thank you for what you do, <laughs> first uh -huh. off. And those are very helpful examples of what the organization does, but can you describe what you do in your role as CEO and president typical day or typical week, because I'm sure there's some variance, like what do your tasks look like? Yeah. Um, so I think my job is, is basically divided into three categories. One is um, managing the policy and programming work. So what are we doing in the education space to make a difference for kids' lives? One is in our development and outreach. How are we raising dollars to do our work? And then the third is the operations. You know, how am I managing the team? How am I setting a vision for the organization? How am I working with my nonprofit board of directors? All of that's kind of in the operational side of things. Um, the work I love and am most instinctual towards is the policy and programming work. And so I spend a lot of my time with my vice president of policy and programming just thinking about what's possible. What can we do differently today to break the status quo for kids? Because it's not working for all of our kids the way that we do school now, and we need to just think differently. And so we, I love a good whiteboard, which you can see around my, I have whiteboards everywhere in my office because we just wanna think differently, like allow yourself the time and space to imagine um, what role you can play that could help the significantly change the system. So I do a lot of that work, but I have to be disciplined enough to stop and say, okay, it's time to go fundraise and make sure that I'm talking to foundations and writing grants and uh, working with major donors to, to really align our fundraising strategy to the needs of our policy and programming work. Um, that's fun for me to some degree. I have an incredible vice president of development who is that's her passion. And so that's, you need it's a good match. That is a wonderful thing to have. You need to always, as a leader, you got to surround yourself with people who are better than you in every way. And that's how you will, you will all succeed. She's incredible. And so um, she reminds me like, Hey, you haven't written those thank you notes or, you know, Hey, we need to have coffee with so-and-so constantly. And, and that just keeps me on track. And so that's great. And then on my operations side of things, uh, nothing is more important to me than a highly functioning, happy team of colleagues. I think your work 
will speak volumes when your team is happy and when you're working together in a cohesive way. That doesn't always mean that everything is sunshiny and rosy here at the Public Education Foundation. I have very high expectations. My team will be the first to tell you that. And um, and sometimes that can be tiring and, and I can wear the team down and they have to be like, hey, reminder, it's time for us to go home today. You know, And so I, I, I love that about my team because I think we, we've created an environment where we all give some feedback and support to each other. It's not a top-down kind of environment at all. Um, but I spend a lot of time thinking about that and, and what can I do to create a culture that is motivational and inspirational while also exacting the most I can out of my colleagues without wearing them down. Um, so instead of doing things like performance reviews, which are par for the course in most organizations, we do something called the continuous growth and learning process, which is just uh, an employee-driven performance review. And it's just a way to kind of turn the idea of um, managing your team into uh, and all, we're all in this together and how can we all improve and support each other's areas of strength and, and, and really leverage those. And then, you know, where can we backfill when we see areas of weakness in our colleagues? And, and it's, it's created a great place for us to work. I wish I could have a larger staff. We need a larger staff, but, um, but right now the six of us are, um, are plugging along and, and, and it's, I, I love that side of it as well. So I spend most of my time in the policy and programming space, a little bit more time, uh, a little bit less time in the operations space. And then my development officer comes and tells me I need to do development work and I follow her lead. So, And talking about the company culture that you're cultivating, when you describe an employee-led feedback continuous improvement mm -hmm. process, can you give us a visual of that and how that compares to the traditional manager gives feedback? So a typical performance review would have your job description requirements listed out, and then you would be rated by your supervisor on how well you met those job requirements um, at any given time. And you might have some comments, and then you might have a face-to-face -face and talk about it. And then you might get an actual rating, like a you know you're a 2.7 out of five, or you might get a um, you know you might get a raise at that time, or you might get demoted at that time. All of that is kind of how a typical performance review process takes place. Um, here, we do two things differently. One is we do a competency-based review. And so um, it is a list of nine different competencies. So it's things like collaboration, communication, um, follow through, initiative, um, you know, attitude and team teamwork, how, you, how, how good of a teammate you are. Um, and so instead of having the supervisor review those competencies, we have the employee um, rate themselves against those competencies. And then the supervisor and the employee sit down and talk through the ratings and there'll be disagreements. Sometimes they'll be like, you know, I know you gave yourself a, a three here, but I think your follow through is not quite as strong, you know? So there certainly is feedback, um, but I I have found at least that when the, that no one is as critical of themselves as an individual, uh, you, your boss, um, is probably not going to be as hard as you are as, as individuals are on themselves in general. That's not always the case, of course. And so I find that just the act of self-reflection and thinking through how, where am I in this competency? Do I actually, you know, give my teammates what they need um, as much as I should be? Where am I in the good to great kind of conversation? That is, uh, 
that is far more valuable than a supervisor telling you, you know, you're not that great with follow through. Um, it just will land a lot heavier when the individual comes to it themselves. So that's that's how it works with us. And we do multiple check-ins and conversations. And we also have just created a, a culture of um, feedback up and down the, the, the hierarchy. And so even though I am the CEO, I very much expect and hold my team accountable to providing feedback to me. And sometimes they'll literally be like, ouch, that was, you were too blunt just then. Like they'll be, they'll be, they'll call me on, um, you know, if I'm not fulfilling the values that we've established as a team and I want them to, and that's, that's absolutely appropriate. And I think that's a great philosophy because everyone's human and therefore everyone is imperfect. So if you're not getting feedback, that's just an opportunity that's not being seen to grow. And therefore all feedback is valuable. And I also like the idea of employee led because it sounds like it's hitting on more of the intrinsic motivation of reflecting on yourself as opposed to extrinsic your boss telling you something you may or may not buy into so that's that right. and then moving to your de business development side talked about fundraising donors grants can you go into a little bit of depth of what that role looks like on maybe a weekly basis and overview sure um so our Budget is our revenues come from um, four different sources. They come from city government. So we have a, a smallish um, grant coming from directly from the city, which is wonderful. We they come from foundations, and that's both national foundations and local foundations. And so there, there's lots of organizations, lots of foundations, some family foundations, but some or foundations that are just focused on education. The Gates, the Gates Foundation doesn't fund us right now, but they have in the past. That's a, an example of an organization that has a whole education arm. All they do is fund education education uh, at major levels. Bloomberg is another national organization foundation that funds at big levels, uh, funds education at big levels. So we, we have a big portion, almost half of our funds come from foundations. Um, a small amount come from city government. Um, a, another significant amount, about a quarter of our funds come from corporate partnerships. So we have a lot of corporations in Nashville that say, you know, hey, education is critical and I need to be able to hire great graduates of Metro Nashville Public Schools. And so I want to invest in the Public Education Foundation to, to build out my pipeline. So we have some really good corporate partners um, that have been with us for a long time. And then the, the last bucket is made up of individuals. And that's everything from, you know, teachers that give us $12 a month, um, which is amazing. And we love those teachers so much to, uh, you know, major donors who give us $25,000 a year um, to do our work. So all of that um, means that I am doing a variety of tasks. One is writing individual grants and, and I do most of the grant writing for the organization, although I, I have some support from my vice president of policy and programming. Um, and then for those grants, when we get them, that also means reporting requirements. And so I also do all of the reporting requirements, which is both a written report and or a um, presentation of some kind to the funder. Um, I also, for the city grant, would meet with council members, the mayor, to remind them of how critical their funding is to the, the sustainability of the foundation. For major donors and individual donors, that's just coffees and lunches and lots of thank you notes and um, little quick emails and texts just to remind people how valuable and critical they are to the success of the organization. Um, and then our corporate partners, 
that is, I've never worked in corporate America. So that is an area that I'm really weak in, but thankfully my vice president of development comes from the corporate world. And so she's fantastic in that space. And she's the one who's really built those relationships up for me. And then she'll bring me in as just kind of like to explain the work, but she's got the relationship building, which is wonderful. So, um, so that's kind of how it plays out for us. That's a very helpful overview and just interesting to hear about because um, I wasn't sure how it was funded. Yeah. And so given all of those different tasks, you have a variety of meetings as well as kind of on your own grant writing. If you had to give a percentage of your day-to-day breakdown between working alone or working with people, what would be the proportions? 80% of the day is working with people for sure, if not more. Um, and I love that. I have, uh, I know, I know listeners can't see this, but but you can. I have a, a large, my, this is my desk. So my desk is just a large conference table, um, which is where I sit all day long. And the team is in here. Half the time, the team is just in here working and we're all just kind of working quietly next to each other. But usually we're in here um, brainstorming and throwing things up on the whiteboards and trying to think differently about things. So um, I would say 80% of the work is is with either so about 10 to 20 percent of my day is going to be hopefully uh carved out for thinking time like what how can i dream big what do i need to do to move the organization in the right direction what do we need to do to uh to tweak something that is not working a strategy that's not working um and i do that on my own and also with my vice president of policy and programming and so that is that is really protected time. It, it sometimes gets pushed out of the way when we have you know major th- workloads, but it's really important to keep that part of center of the of the day. And then um, I do a lot of for every project we have, we have a project manager on the team, and then we have a team meeting for those projects. And so in any given day, I might have two, at most three team meetings, which could be anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour, where you're just touching base with the project manager, the accountable partner who, who is in charge of the whole project, and anybody on the team, like our communications um, colleagues or uh, a partner organization or somebody from the district that we're working with. We just touch base to make sure that the project's on track and, and, and that we all are um, fulfilling our deliverables as, as necessary. So I might have a few of those in a given day. I might have to write a quick um, grant update for a funder. I send a ton of emails that is exhausting for me. And I'm please don't send me an email because I'm terrible at responding to them. But, um, but I send a lot of emails uh, just to make connections. This today, this morning, I, I spent the whole morning on reaching out to some nonprofit CEOs who also work in the children and youth space to try to um, gather, to gauge their interest in signing onto an op-ed that we're interested in putting out in, the, in our local paper next week. And so I, that was just a lot of back and forth and then a hopping on some calls to try to, you know, see would they be interested in that? And let's think about what could be built off of that op-ed and that kind of thing. So, um, so that was part of the day. And then um, and then a, a small percentage of, of the day is is certainly going to be just on, on managing the team on um, one-on-ones with the people who report directly to me which is just like, how is how are things going? What's getting in your way? Are there obstacles that I can help you with? That kind of thing. And then um, also working on the continuous growth and learning process that I was describing earlier, as well as making sure that I'm managing my board appropriately, communicating with my board appropriately, um, et cetera. So that's, that's always gonna be a little part of my day as well. Thank you for that overview. And for those qualities or for those roles, 
what do you think are important characteristics for someone in a role like yours to succeed? Um, I'm not always great at this, but I do think humility is important. Um, I think the, the recognizing that, that even as, even though you've been granted the CEO title, that you aren't the, the smartest person in the room and that you need to have the smartest people in the room at all times to, surrounding you so that you, that you as an organization can be better. Um, so that's what I mean by humility. Um, I certainly thought I was the smartest person in the room 25 years ago, a lot of the time. And that's like absurd. And then you realize like, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. Cause that's not true at all. Um, but I certainly had that kind of hubris coming out of college and, and I don't anymore. And my life is so much richer because of it, because I, because the work is so much stronger when you realize, oh my God, that person is brilliant and has come, is coming at, at it from such a different angle. And I'm so lucky to be in the same room with them. Um, that's how I feel about about my team. I just, it's, it, we build on each other's work. So I think humility certainly is something that you need. Um, you need that insatiable desire to learn and grow. I mean, I, that is something that has stuck with me my entire life. And, you know, I, it is tiring to do systems change work and I do get burned out sometimes. And I do need to go on vacation and spend time with my family and kids and my dog and everything else. But, um, but I also just really want things to be better and I want to figure out how to get them better. And so I've, I'm constantly wanting to learn and grow. And so I think that's something that you can just take with you. Um, and then, you know, I think just, I want the world to be a kinder place. And so I think the more we can be kind to each other and recognize that we all make mistakes, like you mentioned earlier, and we're not all going to be perfect. I do have high expectations and, and that is part of working on my team, but I also have a lot of grace um, that I give my colleagues and myself. And I think that's critical to be able to sustain the work, so. Those are all great points. And for you in the role of CEO, what would you describe as the distinction for someone who doesn't really understand the difference between titles like executive of operations or those types of titles? What do you think separates the role of CEO from some of those executive positions? Um, that's a great question. Uh, the CEO is is really in charge of setting the vision for the organization. And so a chief operating officer, a COO or a CFO, chief financial officer, or in the district, you call that like a chief schools officer or you know, other, other education terms, um, those roles are certainly critical and they have to have vision setting as a component of them, but they're not responsible for setting the entire vision. You know, how are we going to change the lives of kids in our community and what's our roadmap to get us there? There are individual pieces that different people on the team will own and, um, and that's critical and important, but the CEO role is really, uh, the, the purpose and the essence of the organization, um, and where you want to go as an organization. And so that's, and I love that space. That has been really a fun space to play because I've changed the way the organization operates um, because I've seen a need in the community and it's, and it's, and I, that's been a good thing for us. So that was a fabulous description. I enjoyed, I wasn't quite sure myself how one would describe it. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And last few questions. First, what do you wish you knew when you were starting out your professional career that you know now? Um, I wish that I knew that it was okay to move around a lot. 
it was that I, I didn't have to have a, I didn't know what my career was going to be. Even when I had my policy degree, I still didn't know what that really meant. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and I think that it's appropriate and healthy and good to, to go into experiences just as experiences and they, they don't have to be career choices. And frankly, I don't even know what a career really means anymore. It's, it's all about um, finding something that aligns your interests and your passions with your skill set. And I have in this world of education, I have had a lot of different roles. This role is very uniquely positioned for, for both of those for me. It's staying with my passions and it's my skill sets. And that's been really rewarding. And I wish I had been able to tell myself, like, it's okay to try a bunch of different things and you don't, you know, you don't need to figure it all out by year three out of college. I certainly haven't and didn't, I still don't know where I'm going to go next. I won't be in this position forever. Um, and, I, and I'm okay with that now where I wouldn't have been 20 years ago. Um, the other thing is, is I think that it's possible to have a lot of different passions and skill sets. And so I, I'm super, uh, in all of my creative friends, you know, the ones who just seem to like, they, they make things all day and they're able to create with their hands or their minds or their, you know, their talents. And, and I'm really, I think they, many of those friends, they can't, they, they want to, they want to do their creative side, but they also want to make more money than maybe the art world is paying them. And so they've managed to kind of cobble together careers that are so interesting to me. I have one friend who works in four different capacities. She teaches a creative writing class to a small group of students. She's an adjunct professor at a um, higher education institution. She is a copy editor for a publication in her hometown. And, um, and she does some one-on-one -on -one tutoring for students in writing. And so like the fact that she's kind of created this career for herself, it's, she can't say, oh, I'm a doctor. And everybody's like, oh, great. I understand what that means. She has to, it takes 10 minutes to explain all of her jobs, but it's so satisfying to her because it's hitting these different components um, in her skill sets and her passions. I think that's something that uh, that young people should recognize is totally possible in today's workforce. And, and it's very exciting to think that's true. Those are great points. And I think two massive myths of one, the idea that someone coming out of school needs to know exactly what they're going to do for the rest of their life. And two, that the answer to the question of what you want to do is one. And right. whereas the box is actually, you can select all or yeah. choose your own because yeah. it's your life and there are lots of options. Totally. So that's really great advice from someone who is successful and has had more experience than people coming out of college or maybe changing careers. So thank you for that. Yeah. And do you have any final advice for someone who is listening to this and says, her job sounds incredible. I want to do what she does. What advice would you give them? Reach out to me katie.core at nashvillepef.org. I, I meet with young people all the time. I had people do that for me when I was coming out of college and, and starting into the workforce. I think it's incredibly important um, to give back to, to young people and just to explain the job in more detail or to make connections for people. I'm happy to do that all day long. It's really important. And, and so please reach out to me and, um, and I'm more than happy to help. Thank you so much for that offer and for your time and fabulous insights. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for asking me, Heidi. It was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm.